Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. As a reminder, you can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we love to hear from you. Tell us what you think. Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Michael's off moderating a panel today, and so I am joined by a frequent guest on the show, Noelle Atchison. I'm thrilled, as always, to chat with her. Noelle is now the new host of Coindesk Markets Daily, and we'll spend some time today talking about the crypto markets, specifically what's going on with Bitcoin or not going on with Bitcoin, more to the point. Noelle's joining us from Spain, and she has a view into European markets as well. Noelle, let's get right into it. It's so great to see you. Sheila, always great to see you. Thanks very much for inviting me to join you today. It's a fun day. I mean, you are are straddling the world. You're in California, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken. I'm over in Europe. And and this is going to be it's going to be a lot of fun because while crypto markets have been quiet over the summer, they certainly haven't been idle. No kidding. You know, and I think if anything, people are wondering, I think let's just get to the question on top of mind for most of our folks who are into crypto and, and not the lay people who tend to join us, which is what's going on with this bear market? How long is this going <laughs> to last? Why aren't we seeing a little more of the of the usual volatility? Right. Which is we've come to think of as a feature, not a bug. What's that about in your view? Oh, there's so so much to unpack there, but I'm going to start off with a fairly controversial view and that we are not in a bear market anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, look how much Bitcoin is up since the beginning of the year, quite double, but not far from that. And there's been just so much going on. Institutional interest is low. So if you want to go by that definition, I suppose you could say it's a bear market. But no, I go by it's done pretty darn well. It has outperformed stocks easily. And it also, Sheila, depends on what currency you're looking at. If you look at Bitcoin versus in the dollar terms, then it's up. I haven't checked the figures today, but it's what, 70% last time I checked, mm-hmm. 76%. Whereas they are in the Turkish lira, it's up something like 120%. In Argentinian pesos, it's up over 200%. So again, I don't think we're in a bear market. It entirely depends on the point of view. That said, the institutions are yet not interested. They are standing on the sidelines for now, which is very strange when you consider the relative risk in crypto versus a whole lot of other assets that they are invested in. I am of the belief that we have an almighty stock market crash coming because there's no way the consumer can hold up and stock prices are discounting consumer strength. It's, they're discounting said cuts in the, near, in the near term. They're discounting a soft landing. I think all of those are pipe dreams. 
I also believe bonds are incredibly risky investment at the moment because of the misconception of what the Fed really is after here, which is bringing down inflation at, you know, whatever the cost, and they have plenty of tools in their arsenal to ensure that the financial system continues whatever interest rate, rate whatever interest rates are. So going uh, tracking slightly, it's um, the the institutions are surprisingly quiet at the moment. One, because of the macro uncertainty, they've got a lot on their plate at the moment, just trying to figure out the direction of the asset classes they are more used to. And also, too, you touched on this already, so we can dive into that. There is very little volatility in crypto markets today, and that is a problem. Volatility in crypto markets is not a bug. It's a feature, and its absence is the main reason behind the low liquidity, which is keeping the large investors out. With low liquidity, they run slippage risk when they get in with large orders, and they run exit risk in not being able to exit should they need to. And anything but large orders, this does not worth their time. I knew you would go there and I love it because I think what is a bear? It's all contextual. And you have to look at specifically Bitcoin, but I'd say crypto in general, compared to what are your other options? Are people really investing in real estate at scale right now? Is that a thing that seems wise? I guess it depends on where you are in the world, right? So in so many ways, I, I couldn't agree more. I think people are looking at the the extended caution, shall we say, of institutional investors and overpegging to that, if you will, as an indicator of where the market actually is now. Next question for you, though, is given that we do have some positive signaling around Bitcoin ETFs, well, it's mixed. Okay, fair enough. We've extended some applications. The SEC's extended applications here, but Grayscale, you know, got a positive outcome. Why are we not seeing more institutions uh, engaging with Bitcoin? Uh, What's your view on that? Well, how much, I guess, do you think, how important do you think First of all, threshold question, how important do you think a Bitcoin ETF is, right, to institutional investors? How important should it be? Different question. And then why do you think institutional investors aren't necessarily reacting to this signal such as it is? In order, yes, very, and it's the lack of volatility. Yes, (laughs) yes, investors should be focusing on the likelihood of a Bitcoin spot ETF. And let's throw the Ether spot BTF in there as well. Why not? Uh, Why is this important? Because it will bring in new investment. It's a convenient wrapper. And let's face it, you and I are fairly used to managing crypto wallets, but most people aren't. They've improved so much over the years, but they're still kind of finicky. And your average investor who just wants to do a couple of taps on his or her screen isn't necessarily going to, you know, surround with the downloading the wallet and the seed phrases. It's kind of it's kind of a hassle. So when it is as easy as, again, a couple of taps on, on your screen or just telling your broker, please get this Bitcoin ETF, I mean, to get some exposure for portfolio diversification reasons, even if you're not going to buy into the whole decentralized eagles, just for diversification reasons, it makes sense. If it's easier, there will be new funds coming in. And Sheila, this is something that we often tend to overlook. Every single bull run is driven by new funds coming in. It tends to be institutional funds to start with because that is the smart money. They have different risk profiles, et cetera. We know the bull run is nearing its end or running out of steam when the retail starts to come in. That's generally the latter half of it. But the institutions are still waiting for some signals, one of which is, one of which would be, I should say, the approval or listing, or actual listing of Bitcoin spot ETFs, whether they care or not, because I'm sure they have plenty of smart people on their staffs who could handle custody for them. 
they're thinking about what everyone else is thinking. It's not so much what I'm going to do. It's what is everyone else going to do? And can I get ahead of that? So yes, the spot Bitcoin ETF is very important for the markets. And it is looking increasingly likely. I think it's going to happen this year. Latest, obviously, um, spring of next year. But I think there are strong incentives for the SEC to get ahead of this and to approve all of the applications in one fell swoop so that they can't be accused of picking favorites, even yeah. though I'm sure they're quite tempted to do so. <laughs> Probably that's not a minefield they want to wade into. And as for why are they not doing so right now? One, they don't see the momentum there yet. Now, there are always exceptions, and I think we're starting to see some signs of that. But on the, in general, institutional investors like to think what other institutional investors are going to be doing. I'm not saying they're pack animals, but they do like to wait for some momentum. It's not there yet for the reasons that we were talking about before. Right now, the liquidity is just painfully low. It's risky. We want some volatility in the market. An interesting question, Sheila, is what will it take for that volatility to come back? And or what will it take? Sorry, what would it take for the liquidity to come back? Because that's the key. In fact, even more so than volatility, liquidity is what the institutional investors are waiting for. And the answer to that, in my opinion, is volatility. Why? Because market makers and the high frequency traders that are responsible for a large part of the liquidity in the crypto markets, they need that volatility to make money. The market makers hedge their positions and hedging in crypto is more expensive than hedging in other assets. And if there isn't that volatility there, they're not going to cover those hedging costs. And as for high frequency traders, it's just not worth their while unless there is that volatility on which they can make money. So when we start to get volatility, we will start to see more liquidity. When we start to see more liquidity, we will start to see institutional interest because the asymmetric risk profile is there. There is less downside right now in Bitcoin, to choose one example, than there are in many stocks. There is more upside, arguably, in Bitcoin, to choose one example, than there is in many stocks at these valuations. And this is something that for sure smart institutional investors are thinking about. Well, something I think that gets missed a lot is in, in, in the sort of CFI, DeFi I don't want to call them wars, but kind of the camps that we have within the crypto ecosystem, right? And this idea that TradFi versus CFI versus DeFi, you know, kind of mindset is that a lot of the of, of liquidity comes from various forms of exchanges. If you can't exchange something, if you can't trade it, if you can't buy it and sell it, just to be as, as plain as possible for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with this terminology or how this works, if you can't trade something, if you can't exchange it and buy and sell it, it doesn't have any liquidity. It's It's a stuck asset. And it can't provide option value for you. You can't move within it freely. And that is not attractive in many cases. In some cases, you don't mind that, right? All of us are familiar. Well, most people, I think, who listen to the show are familiar with the idea of buying and holding an asset. Real estate's a great example. You buy something, your intentions to hold it for a very long time. If the market makes little moves here and there, you don't necessarily care, right? This is the whole theory behind single family residences or buying your home or owning a home as an asset. Other kinds of things, especially digital assets, are very different. The idea is that you can trade them faster and they are more liquid, and that is meant to be a feature of the asset. If that liquidity is compromised in any way, and there are multiple ways it could be compromised. It could be compromised because people are afraid to sell. It could be compromised because suddenly they're faced with a gigantic tax event if they sell, so they might sell in smaller amounts. It could be because there's some regulatory thing happening that makes people very nervous. 
It could be there's all it could be because an exchange shuts down. It could be because a bank fails. You know, there are all kinds of reasons why liquidity might be affected. And so I think what's interesting to me is when I think about the TradFi CFI versus DeFi kind of framing, the idea is well, what's really needed is the exchange. The exchange is the functional place where this kind of thing happens. And the more places there are to trade, to exchange these assets, the more optionality you have around liquidity. Uh, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts around the role of exchanges, different kinds of exchanges, and what would happen, because I think this is something a lot of us are back of mind, very concerned about, what would happen if one of the major exchanges suddenly became unable to list a token. Let's not let's leave Bitcoin out of it. I think that is a very unlikely thing. But if another token suddenly were unable to be exchanged for any number of reasons, what might the consequences of that be? Are we looking at another potential major crash? And I'll, over to you, Noel. Lots to unpack there. And you know, stepping back, this this reminds me of that saying. You know, if a tree falls in the woods but no one hears it, did it actually fall? Kind of thing. <laughs> um, if something doesn't trade. It doesn't really have a market price, as you pointed out. However, Bitcoin has had a market price since 2010, effectively. It always will have a market price. Whether that market price is legitimate, legitimate in the sense, does it represent the market opinion at any given point in time? That entirely depends on the liquidity and the distribution of the exchanges that are trading it. With smaller, more liquid tokens, the altcoins, if you will, that does become relevant. That becomes relevant when we're talking about very thin float. If you and I were to exchange 2% of a token, which involved, uh, you know, you and I swapping three shares, maybe three tokens, maybe, if that turned out to be 2% of the free float, then you and I could really move the market. That's not representative, and that is going to affect the liquidity. In other words, you're not going to get big orders or, or major investors looking at that because that would be irresponsible of them, and they have a fiduciary duty. So liquidity is fundamental. Liquidity does depend on the number of and characteristics of the platforms that allow for the exchange of these assets. And coming back to your last question, unfortunately, we can all still remember, much to our chagrin, what happens in the market if a major platform just disappears or implodes. You know, we're still working through the, the debris of what happened to FTX yep. in November, and it's not quite, not quite over yet, unfortunately. It's another, another headwind. So exchanges are super important. And as for the debate about what is better for the ecosystem, the centralized version or the decentralized version, the centralized version right now is what most institutional investors have to use. They do not have the regulatory authority or the, the permission of their compliance departments to deal on decentralized exchanges. I think that's temporary. I think that will change as compliance departments around the world get more comfortable with this idea. But for now, centralized exchanges are key. For this, they provide certain comfort and regulatory cover. And when it comes down to the question, which I get asked a lot, you know, we don't need the institutions in this industry. We don't want centralized exchange. It's anti-crypto kind of thing. And my response is always, who gets to decide? The market will decide. If the market doesn't want centralized exchanges, they will cease to function. But unfortunately, the market does want them. And that's one of the points of crypto. It's the free market. The market decides. Now that's not that's uh, you know very hand wavy. Truthfully, uh, legislation regulators around the world are grappling with the requirements of of what centralized what centralized exchanges should what rules they should follow. And this is important because it's investor protection. We can all get behind the idea of investor protection. But the it's like water; it will find the easiest path. 
it will find a way to move. It just needs to move. And if jurisdictions uh, such as the United States do not get some clear guidelines in place, then the liquidity will move elsewhere. We're already seeing that. If I can throw in a totally different twist, and this is another very significant tailwind that we are not, this being looked in my opinion, and this is relevant mm -hmm. to liquidity, is what is going on in India at the moment. We mm -hmm. saw the wrap up of the G20 meeting this weekend. And yep. Uh, one of India's goals for being I'll just the interject really quickly to just note for our listeners that India has the presidency of the G20, which is um, so they are setting the tone for a lot of the conversations in addition to some of the content. But please continue, Noel. Absolutely. In fact, they said at the outset that one of their overriding goals for their presidency was to establish global guidelines for crypto regulation. Coming from India, this is fascinating because you've got the central bank wanting to ban it. I mean, even earlier this year, the central bank governor said that uh, crypto assets were, were not even tulips, which is very insulting. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you also have the Supreme Court saying that, you know, that the, the um, central bank cannot forbid banks from servicing crypto companies, but no bank wants to, the central bank doesn't approve, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, in India, crypto trading has been muted because of regulatory pressure and the punitive tax rate. However, with India having succeeded in its goal at getting some, in my opinion, toothless guidelines around crypto, still they are indeed global guidelines, we now have India uh, saying that it is going to be focusing on its approach. And that is a massive market. This mm -hmm. is just one milestone in what I'm seeing around the world, Sheila, and that is a steady march toward greater crypto clarity. Even in the US, I mean, the, the, the decisions that have come down from courts over the past few months, uh, handing victories to, uh, not to the SEC, but to the crypto companies that the SEC has been doing battle with. It's a march. It's a slow and painful march, but it is a march toward crypto clarity, even in one of the most resistant jurisdictions. But that covers potentially huge market as well. Yeah. And I have to contextualize that as well. So when I first met with the Reserve Bank of India, the RBI, back in, oh gosh, it must have been like 2018, 2019 at the latest, uh, it was just, you know, listen, we've got our universal payments interface. We've got UPI. We've got a universal identification system. Everyone's on it. You know, we don't need any of this stuff. We're already taking a lot of steps to make sure everything is happening. And it's a really fascinating march towards, I mean, frankly, high surveillance, okay? But what's really interesting is you have a populist prime minister in Modi who is somewhat analogous to Trump. I say that recognizing it's a controversial stance, but as a person of Indian descent, I feel very comfortable making the statement. Uh, and yet you had the exact opposite move with respect to crypto in the country for quite a period of time. So this thawing, while it is minor compared to other moves being made, is extremely significant. And the idea that now that I think some of the other moves that were made by the Modi regime have been pretty cemented and they're kind of commonplace and they're sort of a psychological adjustment on the part of the population to the use of these kinds of things, you're now seeing, I think, kind of the next thing, which is, okay, this other thing is happening. Digital assets are blowing up all over the place, maybe not you know, in terms of uh, the price, but in terms of the ubiquitousness, right? There's a clear stickiness here. The U.S. and the SEC there are, are not, frankly, winning their apparent, well, Gary Gensler, I should be specific, Gary Gensler's apparent quest to ban the asset class. That does not appear to be successful. Uh, Europe, the U.K. are moving, and the Middle East, you know, moving at a march pace into this. Brazil, you know, all kinds of places. Um, and so 
I think India, to some extent, doesn't really have a choice, right? They have to take this very seriously. And they're, you know, no fools over there. They're recognizing what this might look like within their context of, uh, you know, of the financial system that they have very, very deliberately laid out. Now, this government is not averse in any way to making extraordinarily dramatic changes overnight. Okay. So this is a, a government that, what was it, a few years back, just banned certain bills, just took them off the market with 24 hours notice. So you basically had, it was, they're a very high denomination paper currency. And the idea was you had basically 48 hours to take them to a bank and get them exchanged. And if you didn't, they were worthless. You could not use them anymore. That was rolled out with almost no notice, basically overnight. It caused a huge kerfuffle among certain classes in, in India. But the idea was it was an attempt to get black market money and turn it into white money and to say, you're holding this in these giant denominations. You can't do it anymore. So they have no hesitation in doing things super quickly. And so I think that's also important context is if they were to decide we're going to lean into Bitcoin, crypto, certain kinds of products, whatever it is, it would happen potentially extremely quickly. It's not the kind of thing that like, ever else would need months of back and forth and legislation and this and that and public comment. They would just do it and go. So I think it's one to watch, not just because they have the presence of G20 and that will set a tone, but also because to your point, Noel, it is a massive market that has remained pretty closed in terms of a lot of opportunities to outside, uh, not just investment, that's a different issue, but to outside engagement within the rails that the country runs on. Absolutely. It's, it's not only a massive market, it's a massive entrepreneurial culture yes. in yes. itself that has had to pretty much sit on the sidelines with its arms crossed waiting for some sort of clarity. Not only that, it is also a culture that is not averse to speculative trading, similar to other economies in Asia, similar to many economies in developing worlds, sub-Saharan Africa comes to mind. And when they initially clamped down, they saw it as a threat to the UPI and also to the digital rupee that they're trying to increase the usage of. But that is bucketing crypto into payments use. Yeah. The fact that they are now aware that, hey, if we let people trade this, there is going to be significant tax revenue behind this. Plus, we're going to be giving people what they want, which generally polls quite well and, and turns out quite well for in the elections. But it's uh, so it, it reflects a growing, a deepening understanding of what crypto can be. And it's understandable. It's difficult for many, for many to get their heads around, let alone uh, you know, leaders of giant economies that have a lot of other things to worry about. But it's significant going back to what you were saying, Sheila, about the India's role in G about India's role in the G20 this year as its president. It did guide it towards some global framework, flimsy global framework, but a global framework. That's a start. You have the IMF actually acknowledging that the point in banning this. It's in the turn on their previous statements. The presidency passes to Brazil in December. Yep. Brazil is very pro-crypto. Brazil has a host of spot ETFs. Brazil's leading crypto exchange is right now in trials with the central bank. On the, on the digital on the digital currency that they're launching. You have banks that are quite happy to surface crypto businesses. In other words, in an entirely different environment, which could push the G20 into an even more accelerated understanding of the potential of crypto assets. And, and stepping back for a second, it highlights what you and I have spoken about before, Sheila, about the one, the complexity, but two, the opportunity 
of an entirely new asset class that is many things to many people. Crypto is a speculative asset to some. It is a payments rail to others. It is an entrepreneurial platform for many. It is many things, and that is very hard to regulate, but also does present great opportunities for those brave states that are willing to embrace the potential. So let's talk a bit about BRICS, okay? Because I think I have always thought, and I think I even in our first episodes of this podcast, that the innovation in the use of the assets was going to come from the global majority, which some call the global south, simply because real problems could be solved in a very obvious way using uh, this this new technology, right? So, and, and sure enough, that's what we saw. We saw cross-border, we saw the creation of African capital markets, we saw uh, whether you remittances, whatever it is, we've seen a lot of engagement, especially in the payment space coming from the global majority. And with the advent of BRICS emerging, well, not even emerging, but well, maybe emerging in the public consciousness, right? This has been true for a long time. I'm curious to get your, maybe a quick history of all of this for our listeners who may not be as familiar. But with the public consciousness finally clocking that this is an extraordinarily powerful alliance, right? I think that perhaps this is a moment where between the G20 presidency passing from one to the other and a baton, if you will, kind of being passed there and with the major, major markets and with the use cases being pretty obvious in some of these economies and, and among some of these societies, you know, how do you think that the emergence of that global majority is kind of a unifying in a way force for certain kinds of use cases is going to play. But maybe first, let's start with just kind of a quick overview of BRICS and your view on that and, and how you're seeing the global economy, you know, kind of playing out in, in, in these different alliances. Yeah. Two different paths to take here. One is the expansion of BRICS itself, which yeah. for night just doubled the number of members, more than doubled the number of members. And while a lot of people are jumping on the down, wringing their hands and saying this is the end of the dollar, it's not. However, it is another step towards greater fragmentation. It is yet another crack in the global system of which the dollar is the uh, reserve currency. While the dollar will continue to be the, the lead currency in terms of trade and in terms of hedging, etc., and in terms of central bank reserves around the world, we are going to see more bilateral trade that does eat into demand for the dollar. We are going to see countries figuring out uh, the independent types of platforms, totally obviating the swift dominated network. And this is going to involve digital currencies, blockchain based, some of them perhaps, but it is also going to involve different types of trade vehicles. And this is where crypto can become useful. That's one path to take. The other path to take is indeed what it is being used for in the global south, if you want to call it that. And while the potential for remittances, cross-border transfers, etc., is huge, especially given the costs, we're seeing today, Sheila, that it is actually being used largely for speculation. And this speaks a lot to the relative um, safety networks in the in the various developing economies. Like there, you know, there isn't the state guaranteed pension plan, so you've got to make money where you can. That changes your attitude towards risk. It also contrasts to the developed world attitude towards risk. And this has been something that we've heard from the mouths of Gary Gensler, as well as many of the European economic leaders as well. Safety first, investor protection above all. Whereas in more developing nations, it is, you know, make money how you can. Mm. So just to back out a little bit for some of our listeners. So, so BRICS, the BRICS nations... Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa joined in 2010, hence BRICS. 
what Noel is discussing about with the expansion is that as of Jan 1, 2024, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE uh, will join the bloc. So when you think about the massive amount of market aside, right, like just the populations of these countries, um, the landmass alone, like in every way, this is a massive, massive coalition that cannot be ignored. And people have been talking about, you know, the way people talked about the Asian tigers, you know, BRIC was a thing for a long time. I don't even know when it when it was founded initially, but been around for a while. With the advent of South Africa, it became a force to be reckoned with. This new move is really, I think, politically, more than even economically, uh, this kind of alliance is, is something that I think is affecting. You're seeing some of this play in the G20. You're certainly seeing reactions from the G7 around how to think about this new alliance and what it's going to mean. And I think it's really important to note that in there, there's no North Korea yet, right? But you've got a number of different actors that the United States government, leaving aside the SEC, but FinCEN, Treasury, are concerned about using digital assets in ways that are, let's put it in the most mild way possible, not supportive of American interests. Okay, let's put it that way. And it's going to be really interesting to see what measures, if any, are taken politically to create structure. And are we going to have to very quickly move to a globally unified or at least globally consonant system so that there's going to be the ability for those who want to use some of this uh, this asset movement for illicit funding, money laundering, things like that, are going to have that capacity not kind of blown up, but are going to have it shrunk. I think this is the conversation. It is, it's Again, it's not about markets, not even about use cases. It's about this other thing happening politically that is very concerning to the United States, to Britain, and to some of the uh, of their of their closest allies. But your thoughts on kind of the political aspects of that too? First of all, brilliant idea to detail exactly what the stanchion entailed didn't occur to me. So thank you very much for that. Um, and to point out that with the especially with the addition of Saudi Arabia and Iran, the BRICS now control more than half of global oil production. I mean that is massive, especially since one of the reasons the dollar is the global reserve currency is because oil is denominated in dollars. So. While I'm not suggesting that's going to change anytime soon, you can start to see what cracks form. And you mentioned the sort of sanctions-resistant potential for trade. This is rather than a move towards the need for a more global cohesion, it is a statement that countries don't want it. They don't yep. want global cohesion because they don't want the US or the IMF or, you know, or whoever, or even the G20 dictating the rules anymore. Countries are non-aligned countries. I would say unaligned countries because some of them are just independent. Countries are less willing to accept the status quo that has been necessary for many decades. Uh, but these countries do have resources that the world needs. They, need, they do have a newfound economic power and they are going to flex it. Of course they are. That is the big change that we're going to see. And this coming back to the whole crypto ethos, the whole crypto narrative, Sheila, is about choice and it is about the unstoppability of that choice. Uh, we all, uh, the IMF even has acknowledged that you can't ban crypto, India agrees, because it will just go somewhere else. It's going to exist. At the same time, you have entire regions, entire economies, entire blocks deciding that they also want more of a say in the currencies that they use in their trading partners. They don't want to be dictated to so much. It's a fascinating time to watch these uh, tectonic shifts 
as it were, and to it because you and I are in the crypto industry to have a front row seat to the finance that is going to be powering a lot of the changes that we have coming up. Yeah. And you make an orthogonal but really relevant point around energy, which is right now, you know, Bitcoin mining and this kind of thing it is not really, it doesn't have the attention it had uh, last year, let's say, or even earlier this year. But you're going to see the conversation around energy. You're already seeing this in some of the Republican presidential candidates start to shift and change as this reality around the oil block that you just mentioned really takes root in the American political consciousness. Again, everyone in the energy department already knows all about this. But as this kind of trickles down to folks who may not have of mind, you're going to see this, I think, come up a lot on the campaign trail. And it's going to be interesting to see if Bitcoin mining plays any sort of comes into that conversation at all. Or if we've kind of moved past those days of that being kind of a major, you know, uh, skeptic talking point. But there is no question that this block has a tremendous amount of implications on how everything is going to be thought about and the balance of power and how the geopolitics of the situation are going to start to shift. And there is no question, again, that digital assets and the leaving aside digital assets, the flow of funds across borders and freely, especially within these allied countries. I mean that allied in an economic way, not necessarily politically, regardless, the flow of funds across the these blocks is going to be increasingly important. And how do you more frictionlessly move money across the border? Hey, well, right. Uh, we have an answer, right? We have thoughts on that, right, Noelle? <laughs> Absolutely. And also the dollar dominance. I mean, we read reports yeah. almost every day, Sheila, that just breaks our hearts about uh, you know, Pakistan can't afford to offload the grain that is sitting in its ports yeah, because it doesn't have the dollars to pay for it, or Kenya doesn't have the dollars it needs to pay for energy, et cetera, et cetera. This dependence on dollars that yeah. are allocated according to who the U.S. is, the Treasury is feeling friendly with at any particular given time. Did you know that China has extended swap lines to Argentina, but the U.S. hasn't? I mean, this is just one example. When the dependence for dollars does create systemic weakness in emerging economies, there is the temptation to think of alternatives. And, you know, what if, Sheila, what if there were an asset that is independent of U.S. monetary policy that could be converted into dollars? What if? <laughs> what if? What and if? There were a way to, for them to hold that on their back. And what if in certain economies, this very same asset um, they could own it themselves by harnessing their geothermal power and yep. financing it with construction of mining rigs that also happen to need power generations. Or what if the hydro and, and jobs electric and create power are just and employ people? Uh, yeah, it's well, you know, we've got to leave it there, but I think that's a great place to end. And so when people say to me, "Well, what's the what are the use cases? I'm going to have use cases around this stuff." I just kind of say, "Well, what frame are you looking through?" <laughs> because I think if you're anyone looking who says that, anyone who says that is generally sitting in a very comfortable developed I, economy. That is a very privileged yeah. point of view to have, yeah. no question. All right. Well, thank you, Noel. As always, we could have gone on another hour, I have no doubt, but we'll we'll have to wrap here. For all of our listeners, uh, come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You're listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Today's show was edited and produced by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>